0: Outlaw motorcycle organizations are very, very smart. They are organized crime and they have been for decades, decades, decades. They know how to launder money, they have businesses, they are very smart. And one of the things they have done historically is they've been very good at recruiting people in courthouses, in um, city offices, in police departments as basically their informants. Um, kind of like the cops in reverse, I guess. Anyway, so we knew that was a problem. So I went in with no gun, no badge, and no wire. So the old thing we always used to do when we went undercover is, if, if we weren't didn't have a wire for whatever reason, is the bus signal was when you throw a chair through the window. And, yeah. <laughs> And I would always pray that it wasn't a strata lounger or something like that, or a lazy boy.
1: Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is Patricia Naughton, who is a 27-year law enforcement veteran. After graduating from Indiana University in 1974, Patty started her career as one of the first female police officers in the state of Indiana. In 1978, she joined the Drug Enforcement Administration as part of what was at the time the 1% of female agents. Her first undercover assignment was to investigate illicit drug labs throughout the Midwest, a task that brought her face-to-face with psychotic PCP dealers and outlaw motorcycle gangs. She later went undercover to infiltrate the brutal and notorious Detroit Mafia. Patty is here today to talk about her amazing career and harrowing showdowns with drug dealers and motorcycle gangs she met along the way. Like a true professional, she talks about these encounters as though they were no big deal. The groundbreaking and intrepid Patricia Naughton is today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes
2: Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo.
1: Hi, Patty. Hi. Great to see you. Why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit, like about your background and how you got involved in police work?
0: It was very interesting times. Um, I grew up in in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana University is, and uh, I was in college there from sixty nine to seventy four, which were very interesting times, of course, historically.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, And there were early criminal justice degrees. Uh, First, I wanted to be an actress who didn't and be a writer and all these other things. And then someone I was dating uh, mentioned to me about criminal justice. And I enrolled in a couple of classes. And I finally figured out what was so profound to me was a lot of the people in my classes were Vietnam veterans. We're coming back from war mm-hmm. and we're going to school on the GI Bill, which is my mother ended up getting two master's degrees because she was in World War II in the Navy. And I still think the GI Bill is the best thing.
2: Absolutely. I spread. Yeah.
0: And as I talked to them, I realized now that really had an input on me and I really wanted to be of service in some way. So I approached my parents and said, I'd like to go fight in the war in Vietnam in the Navy because uh, my mom had been in the Navy and I got a big hell no. And <laughs> so a big one.
2: I uh,
0: and um, actually, my father said, I don't give a damn what you get a degree and you're getting a four year degree. You're not getting out of school. Yeah. But I was really, frankly, I was really touched by these people, predominantly men yeah and their service, and so once I got into criminal justice, it it just worked with me in so many arenas. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated with a degree in criminal justice and psych, I was first employed as a civilian dispatcher for the Bloomington Police Department,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where iU is. And then uh the chief asked me to apply for police officer, and I did. And there had been two female officers before me, both of whom had quit, and I can frankly (laughs) understand why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I I came on the job, and the big surprise to me was that, by some freak of nature, they actually elected elected me class president, which. Let me, for Indiana, the state of Indiana in 1974 was quite an accomplishment, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I would say so.
0: And and I do cherish that. And I cherish it most because women that were going through the academy after me told me they aspired, they wanted that so badly. And eventually they did ach- achieve that. It was something to work towards for women. And that was so unusual. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure, sure.
0: So, um the uh i was working road road single single man car single uh, single man car you know i was by myself yeah. and then the narcotics division asked me to uh moonlight with narcotics, and i was doing that and then one day i was directing. Traffic at a stoplight that had gone out, and two doors down was the dope house I was buying dope out of at night, and there was uh, pretty much uh, an ocean. Oh uh, the next thing we know, there's a flurry and a lot of tempers flying, and I'm pulled into straight undercover narcotics. Mm-hmm. At that time, the Indiana State Police, which is the the premier law enforcement agency, at least it was then in, in the state of Indiana, I mean, they had all the money and all the different sections and expertise, which is to say nothing against the local departments. You know, you, you're a bigger organization, you got more bucks. Right, right. And so, um, they had no females. I checked until 1976. Wow. And so they came down and gave my department a, a whole lot of cars and toys, you know, all these fancy technologies for back in the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they brought down an undercover they had that I worked with. I worked with him. And then in exchange, they had a lot of these dope dealers where they just couldn't get a guy in for whatever reason. Yeah. And so I went around the state going into these places and they were not pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about uh, thinking about it. You know, I had some dangerous situations. I had an attempt on my life at 24 years old on an undercover thing. And thank God the gut kicked in and I didn't go. And it came to the state police four days later that these two guys had been waiting with me, each had a sawed-off shotgun. But you know, these these low-level dope dealers on drugs and stuff are often more dangerous, I think, than the higher-level
1: people because they don't have common sense. Yeah, of course, of course.
0: And uh, I ended up working with uh, the DEA on a case, and I just really liked it, <laughs> and I really liked them. And for people that have never been around DEA agents, the truth is, we're just different. Yeah, we're characters. Yeah, you have to be a character, you know. Uh, and we, you know, we're just we're tend to be very outgoing, get along with people. You have to be to work undercover to get in situations,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: there's a lot of risk. But I just, I just really wanted to be a DEA agent. And uh, the Vietnam War was uh, was winding down and and over, really over, and then '78 and. And they did a big recruitment and uh, I was recruited. And when I went through the uh, academy, basic agent 12, I became one of the 1% females in the entire agency. There was 2,500 agents. Wow. We were the 1%. Wow.
1: I wonder how many female undercovers were there at that time?
0: Well, you know, I will tell you that I was actually hired uh, in, in my group, along with others, specifically for an undercover. Yeah. They they had something called accepted service, so they cut through a lot of the paperwork, the civil service paperwork, and then kind of caught up with it within the first year, and then we were transitioned to something called career conditional. But we were brought, brought on specifically to be undercovers, and and I've kept in touch with a, a couple of great people. My dear friend, Alex Rodriguez, uh, he, he hired on as well at the same time. We both hired on out of Chicago. Fabulous guy, just a great undercover. And 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 we were really like the mod squad on steroids. We were <laughs> all incredibly, we were unique looking, to tell you the truth. Yeah. We we looked like casting, like something right. out of central casting.
1: Right, right.
0: <laughs> so I I they wanted me to go to Miami, and I was a child of elderly parents. My mother and father were just shy of 42 and 50 when I was born, first and only marriage. And I, I just, uh, it would have been a great experience. I did get to go TDY down there and drive the go fasts and board boats in the middle of the night and take down smugglers and stuff. But I, I couldn't do that experience because I was too far from home. So I volunteered from de- for Detroit because Chicago was closed. And I was told at the time, if you volunteer for Detroit, de- you're going to be labeled a psycho from the get go. <laughs> Detroit was homicide capital, yeah. 2 million, you know, fourth in population. But that's where I went. Yeah. And uh, so it started. I started uh, clandestine labs, one of four clandestine labs in the entire country. Mm -hmm. And clandestine labs were rocking.
2: Yeah.
0: People see now because there's so much more out publicly. Clandestine labs were on fire. Wow. And we, you talk about PCP. You talk about meth. Uh, I would mentioned when we talked earlier, you know, your viewers might be interested. 800 pounds of methaqualone, commonly referred to as kwaludes, a biker yeah. gang that my partner and I literally walked on accidentally when we were looking for where these bikers had gone to and we were a mile from civilization with no radios. I had a sick shot. He had a little Walther PPK. I thought we were gone. It was just, it was frenetic. It was everywhere. People were, well, this isn't pleasant. People were decapitating their mothers because they were on PCP. It, It was just insane. The times were just insane. We were doing a lot of those cases, Uh and it it was was interesting because we lived out of our cars when we were in that group.
1: PCP, which is an abbreviation of its chemical name, Fensylclydine, is a drug that was born in the U.S. in the mid-50s by Michigan chemist Victor Maddox and patented by pharmaceutical firm Park Davis, now a subsidiary of Pfizer under the brand name Cernal, for use as a surgical anesthetic. However, the drug's tendency to cause hallucinations meant its use in medicine was swiftly curtailed. In the 1960s, the drug's trippy qualities and feeling of floaty euphoria caught on with psychonauts and hippies who gave it nicknames like Angel Dust, Magic Mist, and Wobbleweed. By the late 70s, as its use spread to a wider crowd of users, the media started talking about a PCP epidemic, particularly on the East Coast and in lower economic neighborhoods, where it was popular because of its relatively cheap cost. Though its popularity peaked in the 1970s, when Patty was busting PCP labs, its use has seen an uptick in recent years
0: once you started it started with the delivery of chemicals from a chemical warehouse where you got a tip we had no idea where they were going and sometimes you'd end up four 600 800 miles away
1: so you would just follow them you'd, you'd follow a truck that was yeah. delivering chemicals your yeah. lab yeah
0: yeah and it's still some of the most dangerous work it it's I kind of laugh, not ha-ha, but I kind of a nervous laugh when I see now all the care that's taken when clandestine labs are, are, are broached. Yeah. Because back in the day, the only training we really had of any protective nature, first of all, we had no protective gear. We didn't even wear masks. Was you had
1: no backup, no surveillance.
0: No, no, and, and 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 no masks, no none of these suits or any of this stuff. The only thing we knew for sure is if you went in and the equipment was hot, you turned it off. Mm-hmm. It was cool, you did nothing. That was the only thing. And we also made sure that because sometimes you'd have people from police departments or somebody who wasn't in the group. With us, and back then, you know, everybody was a smoker. Smoking was popular. Make sure that they put their cigarettes away and understand that they light. Light a cigarette when we're taken down a clandestine lab, we're all toast because you're going to blow up everything. <laughs> but it it, yeah. it was it was interesting, and from that there was a, a quite a spinoff. At the time, there was such a relationship of motorcycle gangs in Detroit and back and forth and into Canada. So, in addition to clandestine labs, which were huge, mm-hmm. we also saw saw a lot of trafficking in LSD. Mm-hmm. That was that was really big. And I I did some pretty pretty big LSD cases on bikers. so uh, keep on trucking. I don't well any no, nobody who's who's you know probably 30 or even 40 even knows about this stuff. Right, right. Yeah, so uh that was really big. Timothy, you know, the father of LSD, table 65 five, the little dots, things like that were prominent.
1: So Patty, when you would go into these meth labs, you would just go in like we're buyers.
0: Yeah. So uh, to be honest with you, with the meth labs, I didn't buy so much from the labs directly, but I would buy the product afterwards. Okay. Yeah. But 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 drugs were yeah they were they were pretty easy to buy, and I know a lot of people when I was on police department and they knew that I was going to work undercover narcotics. I cannot tell you how many times people said you're going to get raped, not just raped but gang raped. Yeah. You know I get it. Because it's so new. Yeah. And people just didn't understand. But it, you know, Ralph, the truth is money talks. Yeah. And it was interesting because as you and I have talked, I'd like to give a little plug to the Mob Museum in Las Vegas because I've been doing some interviews with them. They're a great organization, very pro-law enforcement, and
2: mm-hmm.
0: really a they're actually the number one venue uh in Las Vegas, the number one tourist attraction. And it's really. Really? Wow. It is. And it's fabulous. It's four floors. they put on big, great programs. I was just there for a big panel, uh, the 50 year anniversary of DEA. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, when, when we, we were talking about this stuff, um, you know, they asked me about, I did a, something similar to this for them and they said, well, what was it, how was it like being a woman back then? And, it was like it was the best of times and worst of times. That's how I can see it. Because we were so new. Yeah. That we weren't didn't seem so dangerous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that the normal testing and yeah. all this stuff that normally goes on wasn't there. On the other hand, as I as I looked at it, because I looked at how I created characters,
2: yeah.
0: You're coming in as a woman. Yeah, are you going to bother me? Are you going to try and get sexual with me? And and where's the exit? And you always you always have an escape plan. Um, but at the other time, you have to have a presence of strength and seriousness. Yeah, as a drug dealer, if he doesn't perceive you as being serious, he's going to think, yeah, yeah. The first time, the minute she gets busted, she's going to go crying and uh, right. Sit down. So it was actually a really interesting time and a balance, and I'm not so sure that I ever thought of it as much as I have now, but that was definitely something that not just me, that I think all women undercovers uh, had, had to participate in.
1: Sure. And there's a, a big psychological aspect to it because you're basically doing sort of like psychological warfare. Yes. With these people, right? Yes. Was there training for that in those days?
0: We were writing it. All on our own, and uh, I know you—you uh, you have met and talked to a, a very dear friend of mine, Deborah Richards, who was one of the very. Mm-hmm. I think she was number sixty-seven in the FBI, and and she told me, "Yeah, they they had this undercover school, and they had us come and talk and all this stuff." And I'm like, "Wow, that would be really nice." But <laughs> but you know, but again, I think it goes to the nature of the DEA people. I mean, we're just we're just a, a different tapestry of cloth.
1: Deborah Richard, who Patty just referred to, began her career in law enforcement as one of the first female patrol officers and detectives in Southern California, where she also worked criminal undercover assignments. In 1976, she was recruited by the FBI and became the 67th woman ever hired. The FBI assigned her to the Las Vegas Division where she worked numerous criminal and organized crime investigations, including the investigation of Tony Spallatro a.k.a. Tony the Ant, and his connections to the Kansas City mob. In the 1995 Martin Scorsese film Casino, the character of Nicky Santoro, played by Joe Pesci, was based on Tony Spallatro So,
0: we, we really did that, and I'm smiling because I do want to share something with you that I've, I've never talked about publicly, just a quick little thing. Okay. because One of the things I did a woman as a woman is I had a manipulative little phrase because oftentimes, first of all, we never want somebody to sell us dope. If they have no intent and that's, the, that's the definition of entrapment intent versus opportunity. Yeah. So I never want to trick somebody to sell dope, you know, if they're not a drug, drug dealer. And I really right. mean that. Yeah. And I think most of us feel the same way, but what I would do if I could see that somebody was ba- balking because they weren't sure they trusted me or something like that. Here I was this young and, and shapely woman. And I would say, look, time is money. Okay. You know, you know that, my 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 time is valuable just man up if you can't do the deal just tell me you can't do the deal i'm cool we're cool we'll be friends you know we'll have a beer but i gotta go yeah and and it was successful i'm just saying it was successful okay
1: yeah yeah like how did you dress and and did you have a specific sort of persona that you used when when you went into these deals
0: I, i had beautiful jewelry um I will tell you that outside of work, I, I love beautiful clothes and I love beautiful things. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times it was jeans and uh, and t- uh, tight T-shirts. And yeah. um, I just sent something to the Mob Museum. They wanted any artifacts. I had a picture of a Model 49 bodyguard with a hammer shroud, which is a nickel-plated, five-shot Smith & Wesson 38 and a hammer shroud means that you don't have that 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 uh that that um hammer sticking up so that you get but bo- poked mm-hmm. they used it a lot for the uh, guys uh, the um marshals uh, flying on the airlines back in the day undercover
2: uh-huh.
0: and i actually had this little holster that fit between the cups of my bra a very thin little thing and the the guns actually slipped down in between the cups of my bra and I could even wear a tight t-shirt and you couldn't see it. Wow. And that was actually kind of <laughs> funny because it was kind of a, a source of betting. Yeah. because I did a lot of work with the local departments to support them going undercover and helping them with their cases. And they would have guys come on that were going to be part of this, whatever we were doing. They'd say, figure out where a gun is, figure out where a gun is. And they would take bets that people couldn't figure out where the gun was. And then I'd pull this gun out and everybody yeah. would be falling out. It was kind of hysterical. Wow. And that's part of the humor, the cop humor.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you would go in with a partner or would you would sometimes go in by yourself?
0: Most of the time, most of the time I did not go in with a partner. Oh, wow. I did uh, for some bigger cases, the, the big case down in, in Louisville on the, Louisville chapter of the outlaws and the past national president of Grim Reapers. I brought somebody in Frank, Frank Panessa, who you just have have a finished podcast with him. Uh, He, he came in with me when I got undercover on the mafia in Detroit. I had previously met him. I met him. He came out to talk to me and asked me if I was nuts when I was going undercover, the motorcycle gang, Mm -hmm. he was actually on a desk and overseeing the case. And, Mm -hmm wanted to let me know that I could call him cause it was dangerous and kind of unheard of for a woman to go in alone. Yeah. It was, it was in a bar clubhouse. and yeah, I
1: had, talk about that.
0: Yeah. That was an interesting case. Like I said, I, I, I had done a, a lot of different bikers. The bottom line is really, you know, money talks. Yeah. You know, money, money, money talks. And,
1: and the DEA in those days, and they still are allowed to buy drugs, right? Different well, that's from what the we FBI. Do. We
0: buy the drugs, yeah.
1: Yeah, FBI is different.
0: Yeah, no, that's all about buying the drugs, and it's you know, anytime you're dealing with money, and that's why, of course, again, DEA is such a dangerous profession. When we did this 50 year anniversary, and uh, I said when it was my turn on the panel, I said the truth is, you know, all, law enforcement is very territorial. All law enforcement is. Dangerous. I still think being a street cop, being out there alone is one of the most dangerous, honorable things somebody can do. In
1: 1960, only 4 million Americans had ever tried drugs. Currently, that number surpasses 121 million. Behind those statistics are the stories of countless families, communities, and individuals adversely affected by drug abuse and drug trafficking. Prior to the 1960s, Americans did not see drug use as acceptable behavior, nor did they believe that drug use and the large increases in crime that came with it as an inevitable fact of life. On July 1, 1973, in response to the growing drug problem in the United States, President Richard Nixon established the Drug Enforcement Administration DEA, as a single federal agency dedicated to enforcing the controlled substances laws and regulations of the United States. Their responsibilities include investigating criminals and gangs that traffic in illegal drugs, regulating the manufacture and distribution of controlled pharmaceuticals, and support for drug prevention programs. As of 2021, the DEA had a budget that exceeded three and a quarter billion dollars and employed over 10,000 people, including 4,649 special agents and 800 intelligence analysts.
0: But I think of all the federal agencies, our job is still the most dangerous because, in fact, we deal with the most money.
2: Yeah.
0: And we're dealing with drugs. And drugs is such financial commodity it's just incredibly incredibly dangerous yeah so this was a case where um it started in louisville kentucky and it was the started with the newly appointed chapter president of the outlaws motorcycle gang and the past regional chapter president of the grim reapers and um his name, I think, was Fred Adams. It's been so long, and I think it was called Broken Spur. And he owned this bar, clubhouse, restaurant there. And um, first time I went in, I, I did a, a, a quite a large bar with him. And uh, uh, it was primarily primarily that was uh, all uh, all meths um, crank. Mm-hmm. What was interesting though is because of the nature of the club of the bar clubhouse my surveillance was across a highway oh wow and they're the way they were keeping an eye on me was binoculars (laughs) and uh this was further compounded i i i can laugh about it now but safety was an absolute joke we knew going in that that the police department was severely compromised in Louisville, and then the outlaws had um, serious fingers in the police department, and and there was even one person that was specifically mentioned as being a police officer on the take, mm-hmm. and just as I can, since we're kind of giving. Th- to the general public to let you know you know people that you see on tv are these bikers and sometimes they look kind of stupid and all this stuff and scruffy these people are very smart Yeah, please don't misunderstand who they really are when we're talking about organized crime everybody thinks, oh mafia Outlaw motorcycle organizations are very, very smart. They are organized crime, and they have been for decades, decades, decades.
1: And all over the country, too.
0: They know how to launder money. They have businesses. They are very smart. And one of the things they have done historically is they've been very good at recruiting people in courthouses, in um. City offices mm. and police departments as basically their informants. Yeah. Um, kind of like the cops in reverse, I guess. Anyway, so we knew that was a problem. So I went in with no gun, no badge, and no wire. Wow. So the old thing we always used to do when we went undercover is if if we weren't didn't have a wire for whatever reason, is the bus signal was when you throw a chair through the window. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. And I would always pray that it wasn't a strata lounger or something like that or a lazy boy. You know, I mean, it was just it was ridiculous. But that's what that's what the bus signal was or the trouble signal. So, uh, yeah. So I went in and I, I never had any any trouble with that except for one time. So I was in there alone. You couldn't have any surveillance in there. Everything was known.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, There's only one time that I thought I was going to have a problem. And um, again, with money talking, I uh, called the the guy behind the bar over and I said, you better go tell your boss, you know, the bar, if you don't get rid of this blank, blank, right away, my money walks and I'll never be back. Yeah. And the guy was behind me and he just disappeared. So, you know, I I mean, but that's again, goes back to money talking. But then later on, um, what happened is we I, I brought in a really wonderful undercover and actually somebody I would very much like for you to meet. And I think would be great interview. Okay. He did a ton of outlaw motorcycle gang cases and, um, he came in and I brought him in as my old man, because I always represented that I was there on behalf of my old man, because that's the nature of biker gangs. Yeah. We are second class. So there was always the money behind. Right. And I was like the runner and I brought him in. And at one point we were, um, meeting the regional chapter president of the outlaws and remember what i said about cops on the payroll so we met him and we had this big i remember it was a big white cadillac we you know DEA. we had all these confiscated cars and this is what we were doing at the moment thank god i wasn't on back of this motorcycle when this happened and we were leaving and it was night and, and as we were driving and there was a lot of chatter by surveillance and it was very animated. They were very, very concerned. And, uh, you could feel it. We, we had a radio hidden, so we turned it on once we were safe distance. So a, a young probie, we used to call them strikers, a young probationary, um, biker wanting to, you know, get his, get his, uh, be able to be accepted in the group was driving like a bat out of hell in a car to catch up to us Mm -hmm. to cause an accident to hit us. Mm. And that's exactly what happened because when that happened, then the police would be called and then they would get all of our identification and everything Mm. else yeah, and be able to determine for the gang, if we were legitimate. And I have to tell you, um, it, it was an awkward moment knowing that
1: I bet really awkward. How,
0: big, how big is that crash going to be yeah you know?
1: and can we trust the police
0: exactly exactly and just wondering am I going to be injured in this crash yeah. you know I mean it was just and the only thing I remember thinking at the time is praise god we're in a Cadillac you know <laughs> thank god isn't it it wasn't today and we're in a smart car right
1: right so, Patty, when you go into a bar like that, that's a biker bar, how do you convince them? I mean, because they don't know who you are, right? You're yeah. just walking in off the well, street? there was an
0: informant.
1: Okay. So, you're going in on reference of somebody else.
0: Absolutely. somebody
1: about. Bobby told me about this place and we're yeah. good friends. Okay.
0: Yeah. And and what it normally is like the same way I got undercover on the mafia in Detroit is you have somebody who becomes an informant because they're in trouble. Yeah. They don't come to the police until they need something.
1: So, right. Right. Yeah. Right, right. If they're busted on something else.
0: Yeah. So that's, so that's how it was. And, and then Dick came in and then we went down into the Southeast and they Went went down into the clubhouse in Florida, and eventually, and then what happened with this is I got I also at this same time was got undercover on the mafia in Detroit. So then I ended up pulling off of a lot of the active part of it, and Vic could take over because, like I said, I was kind of like the warm up band, yeah. but the establishment and the buys had already started, and then then it's like I bought brought in the big guns. Right, And but there was 56 arrests off of that. Wow. So it was a really, really, really big roundup. And interestingly enough, I don't have it with me right now. I've actually got a couple of pictures. So if you're interested. Okay. Yeah, for that sure. For that
1: sure. Sent
0: me. And that, that chapter president, the newly appointed chapter president of the, of the outlaws later was arrested for two murders. Wow. Well, these people, yeah, I, and when I say that they're, uh, you know, that they're very smart, they're very smart, and they're, they're very dumb at the same time. I mean, these people are not, they're not white, white-collar criminals.
1: Right. And do they assume that you're buying for...
0: Distribution.
1: For distribution. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what okay. I was, not like personal use, because you're buying big quantities.
0: Yeah. and these And these people wouldn't be selling to me for personal use. No. Okay. And they yeah. wouldn't even be acknowledging me. I would have, I would have no street cred if I was coming. Right. It's just, it just no. That was always Always in everything I did, representing a dealer, and that's the difference. You know, from when I was working undercover as a local cop. And and don't get me wrong. Those those are very important cases to make too. Very important. Mm-hmm. But no, these these type of cases were always, uh, you know, dealer dealer cases.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you have to know the lingo. You have to know the business yep. because I'm sure they're going to ask you like, what territories are you covering? Right. How are you operating?
0: Yeah, you, you do, but you also, at the same time, there's a, there's a dance mm-hmm. because people in the business know that if you're telling them too much of your business, yeah. you, you yeah. you're in your mouth. Right. So there's like, I'm going to tell you what I feel you need to know and what I know I think you want to know, but I'm not going to tell you everything. And I'm going to make sure you and I know that we have a boundary with each other. And I'm not going to just tell you everything because you don't need to know.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So it's this whole psychological dance, as you say, going on.
0: It it really is. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. We, it, you know, I mentioned to you that I'm finally writing a book and, and so the people that see this, Understand. I I have never wanted to do a book because there's so many people that have done great things that have done great much greater things than I have. So I didn't want to write a book about um I did this and I did that. There's a lot of those. So I'm writing a book about the times that I came up in and law Mm -hmm. enforcement. And I'm also writing about some interesting aspects of it. I'm writing about overcoming fear. I think that's really important. That's kind of platform I'm working on now. But the other thing is as i start start the book, one of the interesting things I realized is something I did that's kind of cool and i I don't think everybody does this i I studied my targets whenever possible before I ever met them. and sometimes this one supervisor had this first one it drove him nuts. but when I could, i would if I knew I had a target that I was going to meet, I would try and get a bead on him from a distance Mm -hmm. and, and watch him. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And, um, I would start a dialogue because I would watch his mannerisms. And, and when I could watch his mannerisms and see him, the one in particular, that was an associate of of the Detroit mob. Um, I could start a dialogue with him Yeah, because it's, A lot of it is like being a salesman.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Once I get to know you, yeah, then I'm gonna know what I need to say and be to you. So you have to have to wanna be with me in a business
1: relationship. Yeah.
0: And 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 I think it's I as I started writing it in the book, it's kind of creepy, but it's kind of cool, you know.
1: For sure. For sure. So let's talk about overcoming fear because. You talk about these things like it was no big deal, but, you know, for a normal person, the idea of even like going into a bar run by a motorcycle gang, they wouldn't even want to go in there, let alone, you know, talk to the bartender and say, Hey, I'm looking to buy or whatever you say. So how did you deal with that? Was it a gradual process? You
0: you know, it, it was. And thank you for letting me talk about that because that's kind of a platform I want to have for people through the book and just in general is one of the things I realized so much, again, they was doing something with the museum and they were asking me some questions. They did a big event a year ago, February for Joe Pistone, mm. a big honorarium. Yeah. And they had a few of us undercover people there as well. And then they were interviewing us just like on some general stuff and, uh, the subject of fear came up and I realized how much work I'd done up, but I, I'd never talked about it. And, and I realized how many people lose opportunities every day because of fear,
2: yeah.
0: uh, Fear is just as much a disease, in my opinion, as anything, and it's, one, it's a debilitating disease. My father was a man who was very troubled. I think he was molested in a parochial school. He was orphaned, mm-hmm. and he never accomplished the greatness that he wanted and could have achieved. He wanted to be an architect dropped out of school Mm. and he and I barely communicated he was very depressed but when I came home my first year as a DEA agent he was sitting in the living room and he was tormented and he just he had this monster on his chest that he had to get out and he called me in the living room at the time he was 78 years old and he said he blurted out We we really didn't have conversations. He just was very sad. Yeah. He said, don't ever get to be an old man like me sitting around thinking about the things you could have done if only you hadn't been afraid. Wow. And, you know, I didn't realize how much there were that on my chest. Yeah that 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 really affected me and and a couple quick things when i went through the dea academy and like i said there were so few women a couple things i noticed um we went to the pool at quantico that's where we we had to drive off i think the tower was at least 25 maybe 30 feet in the deep end of the quantico pool Mm -hmm. and we had to jump into the water and many people couldn't swim and tread water for 30 minutes there were people from new york that couldn't swim yeah but they had to make the effort and there was some of the agents who were just you know in the in the pool who were training us who would get them but you had to make the leap yeah i was next to this girl named gussie cox who had been a gym teacher So we're up there in these two DEA agent trainers ready to jump off. We're supposed to go together, but they won't let us jump. And they're going, oh, yeah, really scary. Oh, yeah, look how far down it is. You get nosebleeds, you're scared of heights and all this. And all of a sudden, I was like, and I yelled Geronimo, and I just jumped. And then Gussie jumped after me Mm -hmm. because they were plugging into the fear. Yeah. A similar thing happened on the weapons range when we were training on shotgun because all DEA people are tra- certified every three months on shotgun in the field that we carry shotguns. A, a lot of other things, you know, we went on with M16s, mp 5s and Colt SMG 1911s, but this was part of the original training. And so we were there, and we were going to do the shotgun for the first time, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the recoil is hideous, and blah, 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 and you just, you're going to be sore and bruised and stuff. and and then they go, okay, who wants to be first? And there's like 35 of us and everybody's like this. And I said, oh hell. I said, give me the damn shotgun. And I went, because that, see, that was already breaking through, Ralph, you know?
1: Fear is a human emotion that is triggered by a perceived threat. It's a basic survival mechanism that signals our bodies to respond to danger with a fight or flight response and is an essential part of keeping us safe. However, when people live in constant fear, whether from physical dangers or perceived threats, they can experience negative impacts in all areas of their lives and even become incapacitated. Living under constant threat can result in weakening of the immune system, cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal problems, decreased fertility, accelerated aging, and even premature death Fear can also impair formation of long-term memories, cause damage to certain parts of the brain, and interrupt processes in our brains that allow us to regulate emotions, read nonverbal cues, and impact our thinking and decision-making in negative ways.
0: I want you to know how contagious fear is. And if you look historically, you know, countries have risen and fall because of the fear of being separate, you know, standing separate. I used to do a lot of what I'd get called in with local departments and other DEA offices to be a second gun. What a second gun was to me is we would do a lot of buy busts. That's when there's been a series of buys and now they've ordered up drug dealer for a large amount of drugs and we have a large flash roll and the undercover shows the money and the dope dealer shows the drugs and then give the bus signal everybody gets arrested and goes to jail and that's really the most dangerous point of of those type of investigations so i got i would get called in a lot and this is funny because i was actually the first female agent to shoot a perfect at the academy but that's not why they asked me it's because i was one of the only females at, yeah. in the agency but uh i would get called in to do these things and oftentimes not with an awful lot of prep but uh, you know and they would have a lot of officers and or agents whatever from other offices standing around making plans yeah and they would start making contingency plans well what if this goes wrong what if this goes wrong what if this goes wrong and i'm standing there and i'm one of the two undercovers yeah and what i found is i'd start going into the bathroom and having dry heaves. yeah and i'm like what the hell i i never had a dry heave in my entire life yeah and what i finally realized it was their fear
1: yeah it was contagious yeah on me yeah
0: and so once i realized that I just changed what I did. As soon as I get there and they start, I'd go to the bathroom and then I'd come back. Oh, you missed all. It. I know what we're doing. You know, let's go do this thing. Yeah. But that was really pivotal for me, and I've shared that with quite a few people because in in what we did, there was fear, and there's irrational fear.
2: Yeah,
0: irrational fear doesn't just keep you from doing things on my job; it keeps you doing doing things that you want to do and you need. To make you go forward an entire life Yeah. and and what i would do is i would plan to the nth degree Mm
2: -hmm.
0: where i went in undercover i was never i don't one time i was sloppy and i caught myself and said you know you're never going to do that again because that's when you're going to get your ass kicked you're going to get hurt yeah and you know, plan as much as you can, look at the contingencies, and really look at the fear is this is this really rational? Are you getting other people's stuff on you? you know do you know yourself? Do you know what you're capable capable of and yeah. and i I look at my own father and 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 I look at other people I've known that could have been so much more and can still be so much more yeah but you you gotta you gotta hit get over that hump and really stop and look at it and don't let it take over your life because we all have so many wonderful things we can do.
1: Absolutely. It's so important and it's everywhere.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's pervasive and it's used to keep people and organizations and, and countries
2: in chaos.
0: I personally think that everybody, everybody landed on this planet with some sort of gift.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I think we should try and use it and I think it's yeah. fear and, and sense of unworthiness which I think kind of comes in with fear as well is 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 what keeps people stuck and I I really hope that more and more people reach and especially the young people, but not just the young people. I mean, people are living so much longer. I hope that people my age go, dude, you know, yeah. I always wanted to do that. And now there's no reason for me not to right. get off right. my butt and go do it. And I think a lot of older people are doing it now. And I, I just think it's wonderful. But we still have an awful lot to contribute. Well, I, I broke the mold when I went into this <laughs> this career, but it's yeah. really and that that was the one thing I want to mention. You know about 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 women. You know, I I was when when I broke out, it was. Not, not just me. I, I really want more people to understand about in, in the seventies when we were breaking out in so many ways and not just the women, the minorities. And the other thing is women were the minorities in the workplace in the seventies. People are like, you're not minorities. We were minorities.
2: Absolutely. We didn't
0: really have options and we were just breaking out all over the place. And I, um, uh, I thought a lot about how somebody said, well, weren't you angry about how you were treated? Because, you know, I was one of my greatest partners at DEA when I first showed up. He said, you have to leave and go to another office. I cannot work with you. I cannot work with you. And we were seated in desks next to each other. I said, I just got here. You're going to have to go because I have no place to go. Yeah, And later on, when he saw that I was going to do things on my own, he, he's one of my greatest partners. But it, there was a shock level that set in. But people said, well, weren't you angry? I was treated much better by DEA than on the police department. That was very difficult. But one of the biggest things was I was never angry because we were changing the course of history and nothing is easy. Yeah. Nothing historically has ever been easy. And the thing that breaks me, and I I hope I don't lose it this time. Again, when I was doing this interview with the museum, I said, even more importantly than we were changing
2: history, we were changing. I don't know why this happens. I was changing how I saw myself. Yeah. And so were other women. Yeah.
0: I, I was no longer a woman who, as much as I love my mom, I didn't want to be a middle school librarian.
2: Yeah.
0: Or an English teacher. I mean, teachers save the world, teachers and nurses, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's not it
1: how wasn't for you. Nurse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that I had no idea how much I could stretch myself i had no idea i could do that and i'll tell you if you ever get a chance to see this show called tough as nails on cbs about it's it's about blue collar people and these women doing these amazing trade jobs and last season last season a woman and she's probably 50 years old won over all of these men yeah I mean, women have just stretched so much. Yeah. And the truth is, there were some very good men who did support us. Right. After an initial fainting. But, yeah, they did.
1: Patty went from local police work to the DEA, to undercover work, to working with SWAT teams, and broke through many barriers along the way. DEA SWAT teams, known as Special Response Teams, or SPTs, perform high-risk arrests, search warrants, vehicle interdictions, close protection for VIPs, and specialist surveillance operations. Each major DEA domestic office maintains an SRT capability. In 1985, Patty broke through another barrier when she became the DEA's first female weapons instructor and repeat instructor at the FBI training center at Quantico where she taught both FBI and DEA agents. In your line of work where your life is on the line, you can't have too many people who are just sort of sloppy and yeah. cuz they'd be they'd be dead.
0: And and that was the thing about DEA and, and DEA no matter what they thought of you personally because i see in a lot of not not just in law enforcement agencies but in other places where people like oh i don't like their personality you know yeah dea i mean you know i could have come in with 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 three heads wearing uh, a leopard print bow and on you know on top yeah but if we were doing an enforcement activity if i was going on un- undercover or if we were doing an enforcement activity Boy, I'll tell you, the backup was 300%. Because, again, what we did, I mean, you just never know. You know, I mentioned to you that I I went on to become the first female weapons instructor, in large part after being the first woman in a shooting situation. And then the opportunity arose and I went to my boss and I said, you know, can I do this? Yeah. And and I'm I'm grateful he said yes because he could have said no. It's really important to me. And then seeing the the training and stuff and it's so important, especially for the type of of stuff that we were doing. I was responsible for I'd say about 120 people every three months in my three states. Also taught SWAT and was on our SWAT team and I did guest huh. instruction at Quantico for FBI and DEA agents. Crucial. Yeah. Of really of all the all the federal agencies, as far as I'm concerned, DEA has to have the top training. Yeah. And also we're in foreign countries. You yeah. know, I mean, the danger is just off the charts.
1: Yeah. So you, you were on SWAT teams as well?
0: We had a SWAT team and I was on the SWAT team and we actually brought two other females on when they eventually we got more females i was i was the only female in three states for a very long time on the job so i was going undercover everywhere but um we brought two others on and um we had really really good training and uh yeah it was really important and i was able to add some Additional training that I picked up off of shooting incidents,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and one thing was really interesting when I was in when I was in the in um, Quantico at the firearms unit for something I guess to, doing my two week guest instructing or something. Something came out about a shooting in California, and I, I should have tracked it down, but I want to say it was the California Highway Patrol. I'm not sure, but it was these two officers in a shootout. One was down. And the other guy is looking up at his partner who's still engaged in the shootout. And he's pulling his gun out of the holster, firing one round at the bad guys and putting it back in the holster. See, shocking, right? And then, yeah. And this is how he was engaging in the shootout. And then at the same time, I also found out that in the big shootout that uh, was sadly several FBI agents were killed down in Miami Also, I think, I think that was 85 that they, when they, they found that some of them had their brass in their pockets. In other words, you know, they were firing around and then putting their brass in their pockets and that's in the shootout. And that's because you, when you're in a critical incident, you are absolutely going by rote by training. So I got to implement additional training. I had to, you know, do our, our course to, you know, for certification but to implement different things in the training so that when one was in a firefight one was really in a firefight yeah and then one other thing after that in in 86 we started just to throw in that i think people would be interested i recently talked about this at the 50 year anniversary of dea in 1986 dea realized because of the nature we had kidnappings hostage suicides deaths you know mm-hmm. people being killed all sorts of things and and a lot of it again by the nature of what we did um the EI said we're going to start a national trauma team
2: yeah
0: because people are suffering sure we're suffering and we started training and i was really grateful to be pulled in on the initial uh, committee meeting to have influence input, I guess you would say. Yeah. And then I was one of the original trauma team members and the, the training was great. And what they finally, what they saw is when things happen in the field, we have to intervene immediately.
2: Yeah.
0: And then continuing to realize how it doesn't just affect when I would intervene, I would see how it doesn't just affect the one in the shooting, it affects the whole group. Right. Very much like the military, you know, we, sure. we go as a team and then you yeah. say, saying, oh my God, I should have done this or if I'd been there, you know. So the importance of this, and I'm really happy about that. DEA, DEA was really one of the forerunners of that and took it really seriously. And a lot of other agencies, of course, did their own thing, but followed suit. So that was great DEA knew they needed to do something
1: how were you able to separate your private life from your work life because you're doing this really difficult kind of life and death situations every day how do you go home and just you know shift gears was that hard or do you learn how to manage that
0: you know one thing was I tended to have relationships outside of work. Mm -hmm. I tended to date people that were not in law enforcement. Yeah. And I lost the best friend I ever had when I was down in Louisville meeting that chapter president of the outlaws. He was a wonderful man by the name of Lenny Gilman. Mm -hmm. And he was the U S attorney for the, eastern district of michigan and he kept me sane mm-hmm. and he was the one person i could really go to mm-hmm. and sadly uh the day before we made that regional chapter president actually it was now that i think of it earlier that day he'd been in the hospital and i called him and talked to him and he had headaches, and two hours later, he slipped into a coma and died.
1: Oh my God!
0: And uh, wow, the office—they were scared because they, you know, some of his assistant U.S. attorneys we socialized with, and they thought that I might throw myself under a bullet. They—they they knew that what I was doing out of state, and it was mm-hmm. all over the national news. He was a Reagan appointee, mm-hmm. and uh, when I lost him, the balance—the balance got a little. Difficult. I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as easy as it was, but but having somebody who I could really really talk to because there was a couple of incidents that undercover that really threw me for a loop where I wasn't in a with a, a different office one specifically where I wasn't in a safe situation and frankly, if my office had known, they wouldn't have sent me down there, and if I had the information, I wouldn't have done it.
2: Yeah,
0: and. uh but but having, having balance of not being 24-7 gunslinger yeah. uh, really helped a lot. And the other thing is I have a very strong religious faith. I don't run around and proselytize, but uh, I was raised in believing that there is a loving God and believing in protection and praying that there was protection. And I never went, went out in an undercover thing without praying. And I think a lot, of, a lot of cops, whether on the street, anywhere, do the same
2: thing.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, when Patty infiltrated the Detroit Mafia, Anthony, Tony Jack Giacalone, and Billy Jack Giacalone reigned over the Motor City mob, a reign that started in the 1960s and continued into the 2000s. Authorities at the time believed that their crew was behind a series of murders, including the Time Reality Massacre, the brutal execution of three men in the quiet bedroom community of Sterling Heights, reputedly because of unpaid loans and one of the victims' uppity attitude. In 1975, the Giacalone brothers were suspects in former Teamster Union boss Jimmy Hoffa's legendary disappearance which continues to be an unsolved crime. Some mob experts, including Detroit author and historian Scott Bernstein, speculate that Anthony Giacalone, who had made sure to be seen publicly at the Southfield Athletic Club on the day Hoffa vanished, was behind the Hoffa disappearance. He speculates that Anthony's brother Vito was in the car that picked up Hoffa at Marcus Red Fox on Telegraph Road in Bloomfield Township, the last place Hoffa was seen alive.
0: The Mafia in Detroit in the 80s was nuts. There's a, a great uh, author of five books on uh, the Mafia in Detroit by the name of Scott Bernstein. It's B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. Uh-huh. And... Um, he's a great source on it in 1985, there were 11 mafia sanctioned hits in Detroit. Wow. And that's right around when I transitioned off of the bikers on onto them. It was like, I couldn't do both because I was yeah. also doing all this training and going to Quantico and, you know, and 120 people certified every quarter and all this weaponry. And, um, but, um, I, uh, I had an informant come in like they do because they're in trouble on a Coke thing and uh, was introduced to a guy by the name of uh, Tom Knight, who, according to Scott, Scott is the ultimate authority. And, and we had heard this too, owned something called the Clock Restaurant in Southfield, Michigan, and that he was actually providing um, jobs. For the mafia and mafia associates, when they got out of prison, you know, in order to be on parole, they have to show that they're working, so that's what he was doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so I was introduced to him and got a buy off of him a place called the Golden Mushroom in Southfield, Michigan, which was a lovely restaurant that was frequented by the mafia. Mm-hmm. So from there, I met uh. Uh, other people, other associates, the, the golden mushroom, as I said, was, was frequented. And when I was in there, then I got buys off of other associates, uh, including somebody by the name of Fred Kalal, who was very well known and associate in the community. And then I would go into the golden mushroom on my own. And in these types of settings, you know, people who know who you are, I mean, you're either known or you're not known. Right. If you're not known, you get a cup of coffee and dinner. But if you're <laughs> right. known, things are different. Yeah. So I was, I would go in there, and uh, during that time, um, I was sitting up at the bar having a glass of wine, and the bartender, the female, you know, she knew who I was, or she believed who I was at that time, which was a drug dealer mm-hmm. associated with these people, and this. Very dapper, older man sat down next to me and started to talk. And I looked at his hand, and he had the initials AH, which was, stands for Al Haiti. And Al Haiti was a, a very strong associate of the mafia in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And he was actually in charge of the bookmaking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so we developed a friendship. And through that, I was actually invited to a lot of things where women were never allowed to be mm-hmm. um and it was a very delicate situation because we don't we don't date our defendants people, right, right. and we don't use drugs
1: yeah
0: <laughs> any any female undercover will tell you that is the bane of their existence that you see this crap
1: yeah on t v yeah, yeah.
0: And they're sleeping with their defendants, and that's yeah. not that, that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Um. But I was I was able to uh, get inroads and, and into a lot of a lot of the mafia, and there was a bar, the infamous Eight Mile Road. You know about Eight Mile Road?
2: Mm-hmm, sure.
0: Which Eminem made famous? There was a bar yeah. called the Silent Woman on Eight Mile Road and i was welcomed in it's a strip club i was welcomed in i had quite an experience as a a woman i'm not sure you i'm not sure you can appreciate what it's like for a woman to be frequenting a strip club
1: yeah that must be rough yeah
0: and i was welcomed into the strip club and to the table with these other guys like bobby lapuma um and uh, a lot of a lot of the heavy hitters from the uh from the mafia organization and its associates in Detroit. And um one of them was a guy by the name of Pete Cabateo, who was not well liked, but was a made man. And uh because of the familial situation, they tolerated him, and then eventually his father-in-law died. And I was sitting with him next to him one night with all these other people socializing uh, and the next day he was not just found murdered but horribly murdered his father in law had died, yeah, and they waited a week yeah and they but that's the way it was. two other people were executed, not that I knew personally but were part of the group you know yeah, and um it was it was it was it was just crazy. It was those few years, 80, 85 was the last big year, 86, 87, things were changing. But it was a really, really crazy time. But I spent a lot of time in there, developed a lot of relationships. We got a lot of good intel. Um, and I was invited to a, a lot of other meetings. And I'm still not sure why, because this was not something that women were supposed to do.
1: Yeah, they liked you.
0: Well, I, I, what I really think, and then they also had uh, in Canada, in Windsor, right across the water, they had uh, uh, the associates had bought two nightclubs. I know, or I di- didn't see the other one, but the one was very high end, and they had women imported from Montreal, and it was a topless, bottomless club. And again, yeah. But it was, it was very high class and mm-hmm. it's not quite as bad as it sounds. There's yeah. an art to what they do. And I spent a lot of time over there with someone by the name of Alex Rudoy. Um, but I went to the fights with them. You know, everything was very top drawer.
2: Yeah.
0: The problem was we could never get, I was invited to the Gold Coast in Miami there was just no way to get around it because there was no way for me to go down there. Yeah, it it, it just wasn't it just wasn't going to work. We got an awful lot of intel out of it when when uh, when, when Pete Caviteo was killed. We were up on a pen register on him. I mean, it was just a lot of information.
1: A pen register or dialed number recorder (DNR) is a device that records all numbers called from a particular telephone line. Pentrap orders allow the government to obtain communications metadata like phone numbers of incoming calls and outcoming calls or the email addresses of senders and recipients. But pen trap orders do not allow the government to listen in on the actual contents of a call or read the actual contents of an email or text. The statute on Point stipulates that federal courts must issue temporary orders which authorize the installation and use of pen-trap devices. Typically, these orders are in effect for 60 days. To obtain such an order, the government must certify, and I quote, that the information is likely to be obtained by such installation and use is relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation. It
0: was really, oh, and we seized the bar. Uh-huh. We, we ended up seizing, seizing you know, DEA. The, the we could, say if if uh, if a facility is used uh, in furtherance of a crime,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and then we could show that the proceeds are going into that establishment,
2: mm-hmm. and we did. Uh-huh. So
0: that was good. You know, they're they're actually very very interesting people. Yeah. And Al Haiti was actually a real gentleman. And then I've been told that the one person that I spent a little time undercover on, according to Scott, um. He was actually kind of al was kind of training at the time um Jack Aloney Jack Jackcaly Scott has said that he is now the head of organized crime in Detroit and has been for ten years wow i've I've lost my yeah. you know I haven't kept in track of anything, but his uncle, as I understand it, was the one that was supposed to have been meeting with um oh gosh the union leader Jimmy Hoffa? yeah, at the Red Lion wow. Yeah. So that, that tells you the (laughs) relation.
1: Wow. Well, what a career you've had. And you work with uh, animal rescue.
0: I do. I do. I, uh, I saw so much bad stuff in Detroit when we would hit a dope house in Detroit. Oftentimes, they had dogs that were horribly malnourished that they were keeping as guard dogs and they didn't even feed them. Yeah. So, one, it was horrible. So, we would secure the premise. These heroin dealers, especially, always ate tremendously well. Yeah. So, we'd go to the fridge. If the meat was frozen, we would literally put a pan on the stove and thaw it out. If it was in there and it wasn't frozen, we'd chop it up, feed the dogs. It's first thing feed the animals. Yeah. it was painful. And then back then, we could always call the Humane Society. We didn't leave animals.
1: Yeah. No, the worst thing is a neglected animal. That's just the most horrible thing to see. Yeah.
0: It it, it just, it scarred me. And the other thing is, when I lived in Detroit, I lived on the edge of a park. And um, there was cats that would sit on the heat vents when it was snowing stray cats. And then I would see homeless people doing that. Yeah, You can recognize a rescue person because they had the oldest cards being, being held <laughs> together by yeah. zip ties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the credit cards are maxed because people don't know, donate to animal rescues. No, they don't. And, and it's, it's really pathetic.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, it was great to talk to you. What, a, what an interesting career you've had. And what would you recommend to young women today Going into DEA, would you recommend it as a career?
0: I absolutely would. Uh, the uh, this really got me um, when when we did the, when we did the thing in Las Vegas at the mud museum. There was two. They had nine of us. So we did it in two two groups. I, I was, and I was the only female. I don't know why they didn't ask other females, but I, really, because there's so many women in DEA that have done so much. So one of the guys in the second group is someone I've pretty much respected my whole life. I hadn't seen him in 40 years. His name is Doug Wonkel, and he, he had a tremendous career as a leader in DEA. And he actually went over into uh, Afghanistan wow. and helped with the military when he retired. Mm-hmm. And he would be a great person for you to interview. I'd love to refer you to him. And he actually, when it was his turn to speak, the first thing he did, they wanted him to talk about Afghanistan, was stop to talk about how important women had been to DEA. And that was really nice to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I didn't hear it coming in, but it was nice to hear it as my last hurrah, so to speak. It's, it's a great career. The opportunities are endless. And especially now after all these years, I mean, women can do anything. Yeah. They can do anything in DEA. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Patty. This has been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. It's been my honor. I've absolutely enjoyed
1: it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. According to Zipia.com, which measures employment statistics by career, back in 2010, approximately 28% of all DEA agents were women. In 2021, that number was up to almost 30%. And according to a government audit conducted in 2018, women comprise only 16% of criminal investigators among FBI, DEA, ATF, and Deputy Marshals, which are our nation's premier law enforcement agencies. In contrast, women account for 57% of the rest of the agency's workforce. So while the situation for women in federal law enforcement has improved since Patty, Deborah Richard, and others broke through the glass ceiling in the late 70s, there's still a lot of work to do before women are fully represented. It takes brave individuals like Patricia Naughton to stand up, crash through barriers, and usher in change. We thank her for her service and for being an example to all of us of someone who has overcome taboos and fears to make a positive impact. It's my great honor to name Patricia Naughton as today's Hero Behind the Headlines.
2: Heroes Behind Headlines Executive Producer Ralph Pizzullo Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music Please comment, share, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines